want you to turn to Luke chapter 3, verse 23 for this morning. And as we get started, I've got some good news and some bad news. The good news is that we will finish chapter 3 today. For some, the bad news is that we're finishing chapter 3 by means of a genealogy. One of the joys of expository preaching is that you get to be exposed to all different portions of Scripture. Not many preachers would on their own choose to preach through genealogies, but expository preaching is a a method of preaching that requires you to move verse by verse, passage by passage through the Scripture. So I'm forced to do this, but gratefully so. I am very much encouraged by this passage, and I hope you are as well. There's more good news for you this morning. Uh, This is just going to be a morning of good news. We're going to do this genealogy in one shot, okay? So there are 77 names in this genealogy. That doesn't mean 77 sermons for you, okay? We can just do one sermon. Write it down, 15 verses of Luke's Gospel here in a single week. Thank you very much, yes. That's not going to happen often, I can assure you. Visitors, welcome to our church, but this is not typical at all. Uh, We typically go a little bit slower. And I'll admit that uh, it seems quite challenging, especially for me as the preacher, to keep your attention with a, a list of names. As I said, there are a total of 78 names here. And so for those of you who like lists, maybe those of you who are some you know, bean counters by nature, or you like studying minutiae, studying genealogies, this is right up your alley. And may, may today's sermon inspire you for further study. For the rest of you, I'm assuming the rest of you means a vast majority of you, genealogical record keeping is the cure for insomnia. It's what you do if you want to go to sleep at night. You're going to be relieved to find me among your number, but I hope that what you see here in this genealogy is not sleep-inducing. I'll be watching. But it's actually cause for great rejoicing. And I think you'll see that as we move through the text. The more you slow down and the more you think carefully about Scripture, as is always the case, you find more than meets the eye at first glance. So, We're not going to walk through the names just to relieve you or warn you, whichever whichever kind of person you are. We're not going to walk through this list of names commenting on each entry. That would actually be impossible, really, for a number of the names because we know nothing about some of the names that are in here. And that is not the purpose of Luke's genealogy anyway. What we're going to do is get some clarity about Luke's genealogy learn some lessons from it, and then understand the purpose and the significance of it. Why is it here? Why did Luke put it here? Right between the baptism and the temptation of Jesus Christ. It's a very important question. It's a very important purpose for the genealogy. Actually, it's quite remarkable that once you get into the details and the controversies, by the way, surrounding the genealogies of Jesus in the Bible, you know that Luke's genealogy is not the first one recorded in the New Testament. I'm sure you know that. It's the second one. The first one is recorded in Matthew's Gospel. It was the very first thing Matthew wrote down, the genealogy of Christ, before he recorded any of the events 
of Jesus' life and ministry. In fact, as we get started here, I'd like you to turn over to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. Just get your finger in that text and keep your finger there. We're going to be turning back and forth just a little bit between those two records as we get into our first point. And here's how we're going to cover the ground, just trying to get a bird's eye view here of Jesus' lineage. And we're going to swoop in from time to time to look at uh, some details. But here's the outline. Point number one, the nature of the genealogy. Point number two, the teaching of the genealogy. And point number three, the purpose of the genealogy. Okay, so the nature of the teaching and the purpose of the genealogy. Now I'm going to admit to you that those outline points are a little lackluster. They don't exactly inspire interest or pique your curiosity in any way, but they do accurately summarize the ground that we're going to cover. Let me try to capture your attention for the sermon, not with those outline points, but this way. Here is why you should pay attention this morning. Here's what you're going to find deeply meaningful today as we study the lineage of Jesus Christ. First, by studying Jesus' genealogy, you're going to find some good reasons for putting all of your confidence in the Bible. All of your confidence in the Bible. The Bible, as we know, is God's Word. As such, it is inerrant. It is without error. It is utterly reliable. And because of that, it is absolutely sufficient. You can and you should put all your confidence in the Bible as a divinely inspired, historically accurate record guaranteed by the faithful character of God Himself. So there's a first reason to pay attention. I want to solidify your conviction about God's Word. Secondly, by studying Jesus' genealogy, you're going to find even more reasons in Luke's Gospel to praise God for our great salvation. We've already learned so much in these first three chapters. We've learned so much about all that God did already to plan and secure our salvation. And this genealogical record, it just adds to the wonder of God's divine wisdom. That's what you're going to see is God's wisdom on display in planning and securing our salvation. Third thing that will motivate you to pay attention this morning. By studying Jesus' genealogy, you're going to find more reasons for your personal devotion to God, for worshiping Him, and also for a desire to spread the Word to others, to tell others about Him. And this, this last issue really is the point here. This is one of the main reasons that Luke inserted Jesus' genealogy here in this Gospel, right here where it is in the text, because he wanted to assure his Gentile readers that God has an interest in saving them as well from their sins. Jesus is not just the Messiah for the Jews. He is the Savior of the whole world. Very important to understand this for our own devotion, our own appreciation of what God has done, but also to inspire us and motivate us and strengthen us as we go out to tell others about Jesus Christ, the Savior of all people. He wants to save them. So, does that help get you interested? At least just a little bit? I hope so. Good. Let's get started with the first point here, the nature of the genealogy. The nature of this genealogy. Okay? As you look at uh, Luke 3, 23-38, to 38, 
And as you just kind of let your eyes scan the text, let me point out just a few features here. There's an introductory verse, which we're going to get into in a moment. It's a very important verse. And then there's a long list of names following from that, starting with a man named Heli, or Eli is really the name, Eli, and then ending with Adam, the first man that God created. And it's not typical for Jewish genealogical records to move that way in reverse order. Typically, they move from antiquity on up to the present. Luke's record, he moves in reverse order. He goes back to Adam. And Luke puts Jesus here at the very center of human history. And then he moves backward to the beginning of time from him. This is a a comprehensive genealogy of absolute precision. When Luke said in Luke 1.3 that he intended to write an orderly account, remember we studied that? He intended to study everything carefully and write an orderly account. And that extended to everything he wrote. No exceptions, especially right here in the genealogy. These names that are connected to Christ. As I said, a total of 77 human names. 78 if you include God as an additional name. The repeated phrase that separates each of the names from one another, the son of, that there is inserted by the ESV translators uh, just to show the relationship, but it's not repeated in the Greek text. Literally, it just says, Eli of Mathat of Levi of Melchi and so on. So it's a very basic structure. Just a long list of names here, going all the way back to Adam. Now, by way of comparison and, uh, and contrast, if you turn over to Matthew's genealogy, keep a finger in Luke 3, but turn over to Matthew's genealogy, and we're going to start this morning by reading that genealogy. And you're going to see as we read some immediate and some obvious differences between Matthew and Luke. Here we go. Matthew starts with a a thesis statement in verse 1. You can see there to let his readers know what they're about to read. He says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That there sets up his Jewish readers for the purpose and the significance of his genealogy. And then he proceeds from verses 2 to 16 to give the genealogy. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Minadab, and Minadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph, Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, 
Achim the father of Eliad, Eliad the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathen, and Mathen the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Let me get my tongue from being numb again. I want to bring it back to life. Wait till we read the 77. That's 41 names. 41 names there, starting with Abraham and then moving forward. Comparing his list with Luke's genealogy and with other passages, we know that Matthew has clearly skipped some names. He's skipped some generations. But notice his final verse there in verse 17. Matthew has a purpose. And he's explicit about his structure. He says, So all the generations, from Adam to David, 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of, to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And people ask, well, why 14? What's the significance of the number 14? Maybe we should write that new book, 14 Days of Purpose or whatever. Make a million. Matthew, he hasn't told us why 14. And we really don't know for certain. We can't get into his head. Can't ask him. Why 14, Matthew? But the best explanation, and probably the reason that there are this repetition of 14 and this structure here, is that this is a mnemonic device. It's for the purpose of helping Jewish Christians memorize the Messianic genealogy. Considering that the temple where many of the genealogical records were kept, considering that that temple was destroyed in AD 70, might be good to memorize Jesus' genealogy. Jews would have known their history well, and they would have known it well enough to recognize that there were gaps in Matthew's genealogy. It wouldn't have been a big surprise to them. It wouldn't have been misleading for Matthew to exclude some generations, some of the names. This device just merely helped them with their memory, which in a few short years of the writing of Matthew's Gospel become very important. Matthew's genealogy parallels Luke's with the names that are between Abraham and David, but then once it gets to David, it differs considerably from Luke from David forward. Some other features of Matthew's genealogy, which are remarkably different from Luke's, Matthew has included, as we read there, some additional notes of commentary. He's elaborated just a bit on some of the names and some of the situations and circumstances. That's just, again, a reminder for that time in history for his Jewish audience. He's included the names of some of the women in his genealogy and their significance. That not only differs from Luke's genealogy, and Luke, by the way, is the one who emphasizes women and their role in the gospel story, But this sets Matthew apart not only from Luke, but also from official records, which only included the names of fathers. Matthew here is not trying to reduplicate official records. He's teaching the Jewish people about their history. Jews, by the way, were fastidious about keeping genealogical records ever since they entered the Promised Land when Joshua divided the land among the tribes of Israel the accurate transfer of property from generation to generation to generation, it depended on keeping accurate genealogies. People here in northern Colorado understand this really well, that land ownership means the opportunity to provide for the family, 
to produce and increase wealth. Providing for your family, planning for the future. This, by the way, was Israel's retirement plan. All of this depended on keeping accurate genealogical records. So all the tribes were careful to keep accurate records among themselves. There was one tribe that didn't receive a land grant from the Lord. You know which tribe that was? Levi, right, good. The Lord told Aaron, he said, you shall have no inheritance in their land, neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. So the Levites, they were set apart for a special honor in Israel to serve the Lord in the tabernacle, later in the temple. They were set apart for a wonderful and glorious purpose. And to ensure the perpetuation of the priesthood, the the priestly house of Aaron and the tribe of Levi, they kept very, very accurate records. In fact, that continued all the way into the time of Josephus, who was born just after Jesus died and rose again. His lifespan was from A.D. 37 to A.D. 100. And Josephus wrote in his autobiography, kind of defending his heritage against his detractors, he said this, quote, The family from which I am derived is not an ignoble one, but hath descended all along from the priests. Now, I am not only sprung from a sacerdotal family in general, that is a priestly family in general, but from the first of the 24 courses. I am of the chief family of that first course also. Nay, farther, by my mother, I am of the royal blood. My grandfather's father was named Simon. And on he goes. Josephus supported his claim by saying this, the genealogy of my family as I have found it described in the public records. So he's pointing people to check out the records and see where he comes from. That's his claim. In his little work against Appian, he wrote about the completeness and the accuracy of the public records open for anybody's scrutiny. He writes this, quote, We have the names of our high priests from father to son set down in our records for the interval of 2,000 years. And if any one of these have been transgressors of these rules, they are prohibited to present themselves at the altar or be partakers of any other of our purifications, end quote. You know what that means? He's saying anyone who's faked the records, anyone who's tried to cheat the system, they're punished by being cut off from Israel's worship. Significant. May not seem significant to you not to be able to come to church. You just go to another church. In Israel, this is all there was. Being cut off from Israel's worship meant excommunication. And that meant social and financial suicide. You cut off yourself and your whole family. Anybody who faked the records, they'd be easily discovered by those who protected these records as a matter of their livelihood, as a matter of the perpetuation of their claim. They'd be cut off. Now, notice how God, in His infinite wisdom, He has ensured this level of precision in record-keeping in Israel. It wasn't just for the transfer of property that God was concerned. It wasn't even for just the succession of the priesthood, as important as that was. God intended to make sure Israel paid attention to its history and its lineage so that it could identify its Messiah. 
coming from the tribe of Judah. By looking at the public records, by scrutinizing Jesus' family tree, just as Josephus invited the people to do about himself, the people could identify and verify the lineage of the Messiah for themselves. You don't find anybody claiming that he didn't come from who he said he came from. That's why Matthew started his gospel with the genealogy of the Messiah to demonstrate his royal lineage, his legal right to ascend the throne of Israel. The transfer of legal right was passed from male heir to male heir. Most often that meant from physical father to physical son. That is a blood relationship. But in some cases, when it concerned a legal transfer, when a man fathered no sons, he had no male heirs, the legal rights were passed maybe to a son-in-law, perhaps to an adopted son. Sometimes a legal right was passed on to a son that was produced through what's called leveret marriage. That is, when a man marries the widow of his close kin to raise up an heir for him. That happened most famously, as you all know, in the case of Boaz, who married Ruth, the widow of Kilian, the son of Elimelech of the tribe of Judah. Boaz was the kinsman redeemer, and he married the young widow Ruth to produce offspring for a family other than his own. What a selfless sacrifice. And from Boaz and Ruth came Obed, the father of Jesse, the father of David. So, God used Boaz to keep the legal right in the right family, passing from male heir to male heir. Now, with Matthew's genealogy to provide that basis uh, for comparison, keep your finger in Matthew 1 and then turn over again to Luke 3.23. Let's get into a few of those details and understand Luke's perspective because as you'll clearly see, Luke's genealogy differs from Matthew's in a number of pretty significant ways. Matthew's genealogy, it's structured, like I said, into those 14 generations. He even skips some names so he could conform his genealogy to a memorable structure. He provided some explanatory notes, helpful again with memory. Named some of Israel's famous moms. He stuck with names found in the biblical record. That way everybody could identify them. By contrast, Luke's genealogy, it's very simply structured, moving from name to name without pause, without explanation, without elaboration. It's far more comprehensive, as we said, his 77 names to Matthew's 41. Luke names only the fathers, and he provides the names of many men who are completely unknown. Not just in Scripture, but in history. Can't find their names anywhere, except here. The two genealogies, they also differ in sequence. Matthews starts with Abraham, moves forward to Jesus from the past to the present. That's the common, normal form. Luke's goes from the present to the past, starting with Jesus, moving backward to Adam, even to God. That's not common, which is why we know it's very purposeful here, intentional. Notice in verse 23, the focus here immediately is upon Jesus. Reading from the ESV translation, it says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. Just a note on that. The significance of the 30 years of age, kind of to identify it as a marker for uh, understanding the time here, but also just to acknowledge he was of 
age for public ministry. David was about 30 years of age when he entered into the kingship. Uh, the priests, according to Numbers, I think chapter 4 also, needed to be at 30 years. They served from 30 years to like 50 years old. So 30 years is kind of the publicly acknowledged age of service. So he was about 30 years of age. Being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Eli. And on it goes. Now for the sake of a smooth translation, the Greek is not conveyed literally here. If it were, it would read like this. And he himself was Jesus when he began. Another way we could read that literally is, and this one, he was Jesus when he began. And on it goes. So coming out of that previous scene Jesus' baptism, that amazing affirmation of God the Father that this Jesus in the waters of baptism is the very Son of God. Luke is trying to draw our attention to this same Jesus coming out of the waters of baptism, affirmed by God as the eternal Son of God. And he wants us to know that this Son of God is also the Son of Man. He is very human as well as God of very God. Now, also as we look at this first sentence of Luke's genealogy, we notice another significant difference from Matthew. It would appear that Luke names, that's that H-E-L-I, I'm going to pronounce that Eli all the way through, okay? So he, he names Eli as the father of Joseph. But look back at Matthew 1.16. Who did Matthew name as Joseph's father? It's Jacob, right? Not Eli. So what's going on here? Who is Joseph's true father? If we look at Luke's genealogy in reverse order, that is if we start with Adam and move up to Jesus, we can see that Luke is as accurate as he is comprehensive. We go from Adam to Noah's son Shem, and Luke is following the table of names in Genesis 5, Exactly. Again, when we go in Luke's genealogy from Shem to Abraham, Luke follows again the table that's in Genesis chapter 11. Now I want that fact to settle into your brain just for a moment. If Luke, according to Luke 1.3, remember, if he has followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you, so that, verse 4, Luke chapter 1, to we may have certainty concerning the things we have been taught. If Luke, if his record is comprehensive and accurate, and if Luke, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has just in this text corroborated the tables of names in Genesis 5 and Genesis 11, you know what, folks? We have here the record of time. Of actual time right here in the pages of Scripture. Sadly, evolutionary theory has been far too influential on some Bible scholars. It's eroded their conviction about the Bible and the accuracy of its records, especially in these early genealogies. They want to insert gaps in between all those names in Genesis 5 and the dating methods of the scientific community 
trying to date, by the way, keep in mind that when they set dates and when they date things in this world, in this earth, things they can see, it's a world that's been radically altered by the effects of the Noahic flood. The atmosphere, the chemistry, the rates of decay, the effect and the rate of entropy, all of that affects the reliability of modern dating methods. And we have to ask, do we trust in the changing models and methods provided by modern scientific theory, informed by evolutionary, secular, materialistic presuppositions, or do we trust in the unchanging testimony of the Creator, recorded in black and white on the pages of Scripture? This is a question, folks, of ultimate authority and who you are going to choose to believe. According to the testimony of God, biblical chronologists have added up about 2,000 years between Adam and Abraham. Since Abraham lived from 1996 to 1821, that's 1996 to 1821 B.C., that puts the beginning of the world at around 4,000 B.C. You either believe that or you do not. But that's what the Bible shows. Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he has just provided us with a comprehensive genealogy of Jesus. And by the way, it goes all the way back to Adam. These biblical records support one another. They confirm one another. They corroborate each other's testimony. There's no reason to doubt their accuracy or to disregard the evidence that God gave us about the age of the earth and the accuracy of the history that it records. Having said all that, it is true that there are times when our confidence in that is tested. There are times when our loyalty to biblical authority is tested. And in comparing and contrasting the genealogies of Matthew and Luke and noticing the differences, some of them significant, some have been shaken in their confidence in the Bible. And there's no good reason for that. While it's true that we can't answer every question of the Bible and its history, some things are shrouded in the recesses of time to us. I think, though, that some people too quickly give up in studying its testimony carefully. Many fail to invest sufficient time and energy to see how the Bible harmonizes with itself. How its testimony never contradicts itself. God, as we might understand, never, ever, 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 add as many as you want to, never contradicts himself. God is always consistent with himself. What he says in one place harmonizes with what he says in another place. If there's a failure to understand how they harmonize, the problem is not in God. It's not in his word. It's in us. It's in the details that we have. It's what we've noticed and haven't noticed. It's in the facts we have at our disposal. Sometimes, and I'll admit this, we sometimes have a text that isn't exactly accurate. We don't have the original autographs. So what we have is copies of those autographs. And by comparing copy to copy to copy to copy, we come up with the text that we have. We think we have the most accurate version. I can show you my UBS Greek New Testament. And with that, and all the footnotes that are contained in there, you have the original autographs. But you've got to do some work. You've got to do some studying. That's how God preserves His Word, by forcing us to go back in and to reconcile these things and to deal and reckon with genealogies that don't seem to uh, reconcile with each other. 
We have to be forced to go in and do the work. So that's what we do. God is always consistent with himself. His word harmonizes with itself. We don't always know how, but we have to study to learn it, okay? If there seems to be a contradiction, it's just that we don't know enough. We haven't studied enough. So don't give up too quickly is what I'm trying to say. And don't cave in to the charges from a secular, unbelieving, sarcastic, scornful age. They don't want this to be consistent with itself. They don't want it to harmonize because they don't want to have to bow the knee to it. But how do we reconcile what seems to be such an obvious contradiction right out of the gate about something as straightforward as the identity of Joseph's father? Was it Jacob or was it Eli? Other questions come up as well when we compare Matthew and Luke. The two genealogies are in lockstep with one another from Abraham to David, but then they diverge with David's two sons. Matthew follows Solomon's line, and Luke follows Nathan's line. But then they converge again during the captivity with Shealtiel and Zerubbabel. Now, how did that happen? That's another puzzle. How did those two lines come together again in one man, Shealtiel? And then after Zerubbabel, the genealogies diverge again until they come together again in Joseph. Again, how did that happen? What's going on? Well, as you might expect, as I've already alluded to, liberal scholars and those who are influenced by left-leaning scholars, even conservative people influenced by left-leaning scholars, they point to these differences as instances of outright contradiction, and they just move on. They don't care to think more carefully about it because they have no interest in harmonizing the text. They just say, hey, I'm happy to live with contradiction. I'm actually superior to you. You have to have everything put together in a little box, but I'm superior because I can live with ambiguity. Listen, that's not a virtue. Those people are looking for evidence of contradiction. They think they found it here. Others have looked more carefully. Others have considered the evidence through believing eyes. And one of the earliest attempts to harmonize these genealogies was from a scholar named Julius Africanus. He lived, I love that name, wish I had that name, Julius Africanus. Sounds like I could conquer a lot of stuff. But this guy lived in Palestine around AD 220, far from a conqueror. This guy was a quiet scholar. He just studied and studied and studied. He put forth a theory to reconcile the evidence in a letter that he wrote early on to a man named Aristides. We don't have a copy of that letter, but it's preserved in the early church historian Eusebius. Eusebius quotes from it. And Africanus said that Luke's genealogy of Joseph, it involved several instances of what I described earlier, Boaz and Ruth, the leveret marriage. He proposed that Eli died childless and his brother Jacob, so Jacob and Eli are brothers. They had the same mother, different fathers. Jacob married Eli's widow, and then he fathered Joseph. So, as Africanus proposed, Matthew provides us with Joseph's physical genealogy through Jacob, his actual father. And then Luke gives us Joseph's legal heritage through Eli, his legal father. Now, after Africanus proposed his theory, it was subsequently discovered that he had built his model on a copy of Luke's gospel, a Greek text, it actually had a few names added to it. A scribal error, and it sometimes shows up. It's easy to spot when things are repeated or copied over or inserted accidentally into the text. 
And that's discovered through a process, a normal process, that we call textual criticism. Africanus, his scheme, it suffers from much complexity. His manner of resolving these genealogies, it does provide a possible solution. That's one way people go, but I, I do think it's a bit improbable. Won't go into detail on that. That's all you'll get for right now, okay? Much closer to our time. J. Gresham Machen followed the approach of a scholar named Lord Hervey. And similar to Africanus, his approach considers both of these genealogies to be tracing Joseph's descendants. Matthew, he says, gives the legal descendants of David, so that's where he differs from Africanus. And Luke, the physical descendants to which Joseph, by marrying Mary, that's the line that he finally belonged. So, since uh, Joseph's father Jacob, from Matthew's account, since he died childless, the line of Jacob continued through Joseph via Eli, who was Mary's father. Okay? Now, if those schemes seem complex to you, you better get it down because there's going to be a test. Before you, ha- before you can leave here, no, I'm just kidding. But if you're having difficulty following this, don't worry. I'm about to give you the one you need to pay attention to. So if you've been sleeping, wake up now. Get up. Stand up if you need to. I'm about to give the one that makes what I think is the most sense. And you can follow this right from your Bible. This solution was uh, first proposed. You can find evidence of it all along, but it was really articulated most robustly during the period just prior to the Reformation, when Greek texts and other books of antiquity were being discovered in their original languages. And that is, by the way, one of the positive outcomes of the Crusades. It sent Europeans back into the Holy Land, and they found these libraries, and they brought things back, and they gave them over to the scholars and said, here, I don't know what it is, but take a look. So these guys did a lot of scholarly study. That's why we had the Reformation and the Renaissance coming out of Europe, because of all that discovery. So the man who first articulated most carefully this solution was a man named Aeneas of Viterbo, which is in northern Italy. And he, he wrote this down in 1490. And his work has been developed by more recent scholars. Frederick Godet is one that I found very helpful here. But let me give you the punchline up front. And then I'm going to show you why I think this is the best solution. Matthew gives us a genealogy of Joseph, which is the legal lineage of David. That is, it's the right to rule passed on legally from father to son. And then Luke, he provides the genealogy of Mary, but it's not Mary, it's Jesus through Mary's father, Eli, which is the actual physical lineage of Jesus. Matthew is Jesus' legal lineage through his legal father, Joseph. Luke is Jesus' physical lineage through his actual mother, by blood, his mother, Mary, through his grandfather, Eli. Now, if you look closely again at verse 23, notice that the translators have provided these helpful markers that we use in English called parentheses. There are no parentheses in the Greek text, okay? But they are warranted here to provide clarification. And I think after a more careful scrutiny of the Greek text, I think the parentheses actually should be adjusted slightly so that we get the most accurate sense. I'm not going to bore you with the grammatical detail, which has to do with the use of the Greek article, uh, the genitive case, the name it modifies, and all the rest. Let me just show you how I believe that these parentheses should be drawn. Currently, you can see in the ESV, the parentheses read like this. Jesus, being the son, open parentheses, as was supposed, 
close parentheses, of Joseph, the son of Heli. That reading with the parentheses like that makes Joseph the son of Heli in some way, or Eli in some way. That's been the source of much confusion. I believe the sentence should be structured this way. Jesus being the son, open parentheses, as was supposed of Joseph, closed parentheses, the son of Eli. So in effect, we have just extended the parentheses to the right by two words. So that the phrase, as was supposed of Joseph, that phrase is read together. It's considered together. And I think that's exactly right. Jesus being the son as we supposed of Joseph, but in reality, he is the son of Eli, of Mathat, and so on. So Eli here is Jesus' maternal grandfather, the father of his mother Mary. The Talmud cites Eli as the father of Mary as well, so there's no doubt about that fact. As I mentioned earlier, Luke's concern here, fresh off this divine affirmation of Jesus as the eternal Son of God, Luke wants his readers to remember that Jesus is also the Son of Man, that he has a very real, actual, physical connection with the human race. And that is why Luke takes Jesus' lineage through Mary, his physical mother, through her father, her physical father, his grandfather, and all the way back to Adam. We're going to talk about that more in a moment. So Matthew records Jesus' legal lineage, his legally inherited right to the throne of David, which was of great interest to his Jewish readers. But Luke wants to show Jesus' true humanity, which was of great interest to his Gentile readers. Remember, Jesus had no human father. As Luke has already made plain by focusing on the virgin conception and birth, but Jesus still possessed true humanity through Mary and was thereby connected all the way back through David, through Adam, to God. So, what first appears to be contradictory, actually, all this does is reflect difference in purpose, difference in intention, difference in writing. And once again, I just want to emphasize this, folks. We find every reason for putting all of our confidence in the Bible. This is the, without any competitor at all, this is the most scrutinized text in the entire world. Throughout all of human history. And you know what? We're still preaching from it. It's always held up to honest intellectual scrutiny. Even dishonest scrutiny as well. God's Word is inerrant. It is rock-solid, reliable, and it's absolutely sufficient. It's worth building your life upon. Okay? So, now that we understand whose genealogy this is, let's look at some of the features of the genealogy itself and see some of the lessons we can learn. This is the second point in our outline. I promise these will go a little bit quicker. The teaching of the genealogy. The teaching. There are a number of things we can learn from the genealogical records of Scripture. I'm only going to mention a few just briefly from this. To begin with, let's read, starting in verse 23, going to verse 27. See, I'm going to break it up in chunks. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed of Joseph, but in actuality being, that's what we just studied, being the son of Eli, the son of Mathet, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, 
the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Semen, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Reza, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Mary. We'll stop there. After Jesus and Joseph, and then before Zerubbabel and Shealtiel, do you recognize any of those names? Probably not. They may seem familiar because some of these names show up in other parts of Scripture, but actually these people don't show up in other parts of Scripture. And if it weren't for this page of the New Testament, they wouldn't register in human history in any way at all. We know nothing about them, and yet each one of these people is significant to the divine plan. Even though they couldn't have planned or predicted it, each one of these people even though they lived just normal, mundane lives like most of us, God connected Adam to Abraham to David to the Christ through them. All those generations of humanity represented by all those names. And they themselves represent millions of people who have never been known. But they're known to God, aren't they? Every single one. And they are all important to Him. God knows each one by name. Each one figures into the outworking of His eternal plan to glorify Himself through Christ. They're at the very center of all human history. They're in the very middle of the mass of all humanity. Is Jesus. None of us unimportant. All of us counting. All of us registering if not on the pages of Scripture, in the mind of God. Another lesson here. And this centers on the two names from that list at the end that we do recognize, Shealtiel and Zerubbabel. Remember that those names show up in Matthew's list as well. And that means that Shealtiel and Zerubbabel, according to Matthew's genealogy, are involved in establishing the Messiah's legal right to the throne. And at the same time, Shealtiel and Zerubbabel, according to Luke's genealogy, they're also in the physical lineage of Jesus. Both things are true. Both are true. We do not have time to set out all the complexities of uh, what I just said. Um, believe me, you do not want me to do that. But the fact that Shealtiel and Zerubbabel show up in both genealogies, it is a complex issue. It involves piecing together a puzzle when you don't have all the pieces. Pieces are sometimes hidden way back like 2,000 years ago. You can't go find them. But that said, let me emphasize two important facts about these men, Shealtiel and Zerubbabel, names that are shared by both genealogies. Shealtiel and Zerubbabel, as I said, they're part of the legal line of David through Solomon. They are also part of the physical line of David through Nathan. And as such, they're essential to the messianic plan. First of all, Shealtiel and Zerubbabel are part of the legal line of David. Back in Matthew 1, if you want to look there, Matthew 1, 11 to 12, Shealtiel, Zerubbabel, legal descendants of King Jeconiah, who is a physical descendant of Solomon. Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and on it goes. Jeconiah a descendant of Solomon. He is the legal father or grandfather of Shealtiel. He is not his physical father. 
They're not of the same bloodline. We know that because, second fact, Luke puts Shealtiel and Zerubbabel in the bloodline of David through Nathan, not Solomon. Look at verses 27 to 31 in Luke chapter 3. It's the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kossum, the son of Edmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Malaya, the son of Mena, the son of Maratha, the son of Nathan, the son of David. It may seem like we're making a big deal over nothing, but stick with me here. This is actually a very, very big deal. Shealtiel and Zerubbabel, part of the legal line of David through Solomon, eventually Jeconiah, but not a part of the physical offspring of Jeconiah. They belong to the bloodline of David through Nathan, not Solomon, not Jeconiah. Why is that important? Because according to Jeremiah 24.30, God cursed Jeconiah's bloodline. This is what he said. Write this man down as childless. A man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. That is a very comprehensive and unmistakable curse. Anybody coming from your body is not going to be sitting on the throne. That speaks to physical descent, right? Not legal, physical. So because Shealtiel descends physically from David through Nathan, not through Solomon. He and his son Zerubbabel are essential here in bypassing the curse of God on Jeconiah that God would never allow his offspring to sit on the throne of David. Not only that, but because Shealtiel and Zerubbabel descend physically from David through Nathan, Solomon's older brother, the two shared the same mother Bathsheba, by the way, But because Shealtiel, Zerubbabel, descend physically from David through Nathan, Solomon's older brother, God could remain also faithful to the promise he made to David in 2 Samuel 7 to raise up the Messiah from his physical offspring. That's why God pronounces the restoration of the Messianic line through Zerubbabel over in the prophecy of Haggai, one of the post-exilic prophets. Haggai 2.23, God said this to Zerubbabel, I'll take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. By calling Zerubbabel there a signet ring, God has identified him as the resumption of the messianic line. And in this way, God has kept his word on both accounts. (laughs) God has fulfilled his promise to David to allow his physical descendant to sit on his throne. God has also fulfilled his curse on Jeconiah along with the wickedness that he represented in all Judah's kings to disallow one of his physical descendants to sit on the throne of David. God takes sin seriously, folks, and he deals with it, but it doesn't nullify his grace. It doesn't compromise his faithfulness. God is wise to continue his plan Moving forward. Didn't take him by surprise. Paul says about God in Romans 3.26 that God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
That is to say, God is just in punishing sin. He deals with sin, just as he did by pronouncing a curse on Jeconiah's line. He didn't tolerate the evil. And he followed through to ensure that no physical descendant of his would ever sit on David's throne. God is just to punish sin. God is also merciful. God is also kind. And by his amazing grace, faithful to his promises, according to his infinite wisdom, he makes sure that sin will never thwart his purposes. While he never lets even the smallest sin go unpunished, he also doesn't let one jot or tittle of his precious word fall to the ground unfulfilled. Isn't that awesome? God made sure the promise to David was fulfilled. He preserved a faithful line through David's lesser known son, Nathan. God made sure the messianic line was physically connected from David to Nathan, to Shealtiel and Zerubbabel, to Eli, Mary, and Jesus. And I'm so thankful God did that because he promises to justify the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Beloved, that's my only hope and it's yours too. Now, now that we see how God overcame the curse on Jeconiah, there's one more obvious lesson that we can learn from this genealogy. We'll just keep reading Continuing from verse 31 through the middle of verse 34, we see the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Amminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. Now I'll just mention this quickly because we've talked about it so much already in our study of Luke's gospel and because the time is short, but by tracing Jesus' ancestry through David back to Jacob, son of Isaac, son of Abraham, we see clearly that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Okay, He is the promise of the seed that God made to Abraham in Romans. We see that in Romans 4, Galatians 3. He's also the promised offspring of David to sit on his throne forever, according to 2 Samuel 7 and Luke 1.32. Jesus fulfills all Jewish hope just a few of the many things we can learn from the teaching of the genealogy. And if I could just kind of wrap all that up, just summarize it before we move on into one main lesson. It's this. Here's the lesson. God is faithful. God is faithful. He keeps his promises. And for those of us who trust in him, believing in Jesus whom he sent, We can see all the lengths that he goes to in these genealogies to keep his word. It's exactly what Joshua told Israel before he died in Joshua 23, 14. He said, and now I'm about to go the way of all the earth. When an older man speaks, by the way, you need to listen. When an older man speaks before he's about to depart from the earth, you want to pay attention. He says, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. And you know in your hearts and your souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God has promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. God keeps his promises. That's what we learned from studying the genealogies in Matthew and Luke. Well, one more outline point. We haven't talked about yet Luke's purpose for this genealogy in the gospel record, why he placed it where he did. So point three, just quickly, the purpose of the genealogy. Matthew put his genealogy right at the beginning of his gospel, Luke's comes within the narrative, wedged in between the baptism and temptations of Jesus. Question is, why? 
seems to break up the flow of the narrative here pretty significantly. So what is Luke's purpose for this genealogy? We stopped reading at verse 34. Let's pick it up there. See what Luke has in mind. Theological reason Luke has here. Verse 34, son of Abraham, son of Terah, son of Nahor, the son of Sereg, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad. We thought of naming our firstborn son, Arphaxad. The son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Now in Luke 3.22, at Jesus' baptism, we read the divine affirmation, you are my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. So Jesus is the son of God in the divine sense, but he is also a son of God, sharing in the same nature as the rest of his human brothers and sisters. Just as Jesus identified with sinful humanity by entering into the waters of John's baptism in Luke 3.21, he is also identified as the true son of humanity by normal, natural descent. He is the son of God and he is truly the son of man. That means he has a concern for all humanity, every single one. And that's why, even though Jesus is the Messiah of the Jews, he does not belong to the Jews exclusively. He's ours too. He came to save all those who believe in him, Jew and Gentile. Remember, that's what the Samaritans learned. John 4, 42, when they said to the Samaritan woman who had met Jesus earlier at the well, they said, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we've heard for ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. Not the Savior of the Jews. He's that too. He's the Savior of the world. The Apostle John, he said the same thing, summarizing this in 1 John 4.14, Jesus isn't just the Savior of the Jews, but of all people. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. What is the world? Jew and Gentile. Luke demonstrates this to his target audience. A predominantly Gentile readership of this gospel. He takes Jesus' lineage all the way back to Adam, the first Son of God, and it's yet another indication of God's universal concern. The universal concern of this great gospel. So, Luke has recorded this comprehensive genealogy extending from Jesus through Mary's father Eli all the way back to Adam to demonstrate the solidarity our Savior has as one of us. To demonstrate the universality of the Savior as the Son of Man. One more purpose, though, that Luke has in mind. It's no accident Luke placed the genealogy where he did. That he chose to go against normal convention to reverse the order and trace Jesus' lineage backwards to Adam. Luke was very intentional to juxtapose Adam's name with the temptation of Jesus. Luke wanted us to read Adam's name and then to see Jesus entering into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, why do you think that's important? What's the theological point he's making here? You guessed it, I think. When Adam was tempted by the devil, he fell, didn't he? But when Jesus was tempted by the devil, 
You can see there in Luke 4.13, Jesus exhausted the devil. He sent the devil away licking his wounds. He sent the devil away checking his book to see what he missed. This always works with people. What's going on? When the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until a more opportune time. What Adam failed to do, standing up to temptation, Jesus did. He accomplished. He withstood every temptation. He pleased God in every single way. And Luke wants us to see that Jesus here is the last Adam. That he is the only one who has the power to deliver us from every temptation, to strengthen us in every weakness, to save us from every sin and failure. One of Luke's more famous traveling companions, one of his closest friends, he wrote this in 1 Corinthians 15.45. The first man, Adam, became a living being, but the last, Adam, that is by virtue of his perfection and righteousness, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Our union with Jesus is our salvation. Earlier in that same chapter, Paul wrote this in verses 21 and 22. As by a man came death, thanks Adam, by a man also has come the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Thank you, Christ. Thank you, last Adam. As the last Adam, Jesus is the new representative head over a new humanity. And just as those in the first Adam die because he represented them in unrighteousness and unbelief, so also those who are in the last Adam, who belong to him, they live. He represents us in righteousness and we live in him by faith. So, before taking us into the wilderness, to observe Jesus standing firm against the onslaught of satanic temptation, Luke wanted us to see the theological significance of what Jesus did, what he was about to do, so we could have a basis for understanding the implications for us. Jesus is our perfect representative. He is the last Adam, and this is his lineage. Showing his solidarity with humanity, his full and final representation for those who trust in him. Just a final note. It's interesting that as, as important as genealogies were to the Jews in ancient times, being absolutely fastidious about accurate record-keeping, their ancestry, we read earlier about that, right? From Josephus, who lived just after Christ, died at the end of the first century. It's interesting to note that as one author put it, one scholar put it, this characteristic accuracy seems to have ended at the destruction of Jerusalem by Titus in AD 70. It's almost as if the genealogies of the Jews had served their purpose. No more need. No more need to track the succession of priesthood or royalty among the Jews. Why? Because those roles have been permanently filled by Christ. There's not even a need any longer to make sure the land grants remain within the tribes to be passed down within each family because the Messiah will return one day. And when he does, he'll usher in the millennial kingdom, the millennial reign, he'll restore the land to Israel, and he will ensure the proper allocation of the land, tribe by tribe, you read all about that in Ezekiel 47.13 to 48.29. All that to say, these genealogies, folks, have served their purpose to show us the Messiah. And since Jesus came, you know what? 
physical connection to Him is not of any account. We don't need to be connected to Him by bloodline. doesn't matter about our birth. doesn't matter about who we are, where we come from, what our intellect is. doesn't matter what our background is. doesn't matter what our culture is. He is the Savior of all the world by faith. Only a spiritual union matters, one that comes by the Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ. That is a connection, folks, that is more profound than blood, that lasts longer than all this life. <laughs> Look, all the names in that genealogy, those people are dead, folks. There's only one that continues to live, right? Jesus, he rose from the dead, and through him, all of them live. Through faith in him, they live. Those united to Jesus by faith, those are the ones that are in his spiritual lineage eternally, and he's keeping the record book. There's a book of life in it. He writes the names, right? Well, that's the genealogy. Not too painful, right? I promise we won't come back and review all the names next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for putting us through the genealogy so that we can recognize some very important things. We've learned why you are so wise and holy, how you are just taking all of our sins seriously, but also punishing it fully in Christ, our Savior, our substitute sacrifice. We thank you that you have dealt with our sin fully and finally in him, and that we live because he lives, because he is resurrected from the dead. We're thankful that we don't have to be connected by place or time or lineage or any bloodline There's no preference before you. You give faith. We trust you. We trust him. We trust the sacrifice that he made for us on the cross. And we trust in his perfect righteousness to to satisfy you.